I'm really excited about Advent. I love Advent. Uh, today marks the beginning of the, the season in the church calendar. The word Advent simply means arrival. And for centuries, the church has observed this period of time leading up to Christmas as we set aside time to reflect on the past arrival of Christ in the form of Jesus, but also in the second coming of Christ, when God will carry out the fruition of his promises, um, as the song says, far as the curse is found, right? This is a beautiful season of worship when we enter into the anticipation of Christ's arrival, past, present, and future. And we get to revere the mystery of this God who is Emmanuel, right? God with us. Now, tradition and liturgy, uh, they can always be a little bit boring and meaningless until you know what's behind it and, and why, why we do it. And then liturgy can become really cool. Tradition can become really cool. This is an Advent wreath that you see in front of you. Uh, this tradition began in Europe in the 1800s, and each candle represents uh, one of the four themes of Advent. So the four themes of Advent are hope, peace, joy, and love. And the fifth candle represents, uh, in the middle, represents uh, Christ. The candles of hope, peace, and love are all purple, and that is a liturgical color representing a posture of prayer and sacrifice, which I think is cool. And then uh, the joy candle is pink. It's set apart because pink is the color for joy. And of course, the, the Christ candle in the middle is white, representing the spotless lamb, the purity of Jesus. And the wreath is also made of evergreen, traditionally, and in a circle, which is supposed to represent the eternal, unending nature of God's goodness. Each week during Advent, we're going to be lighting a candle and reading portions of the scripture as we uh, posture our hearts in worship during the Advent season. I also wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the tension of the Christmas season. Uh, life is rarely ever just one thing, right? Rarely is life ever just sad or just happy. Life is complex, and there are seasons that are more difficult than others. And for those of us who are right now enduring difficult things, uh, Christmas can seem a little bit like a contradiction, can't it? Right now, the atmosphere of celebration and happiness is everywhere you look, and so it can make our suffering and our sadness feel more pronounced. We know that things like mental health uh, become a real struggle for people during the holiday season. I know for me and my family, it was the week of Christmas 2020 that uh, my wife and I experienced our first of three losses to miscarriage. And so celebrating the birth of a baby uh, that year was really complex for us, right? Um, now, the other side of that, life kind of undulates. It goes all over the place. This year, joy feels a little more accessible. It feels a little more abundant because we're holding our, our new baby in this, in this season. The point is, life moves all around. And it's rarely ever just one thing. Wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, whether it be grief or joy, celebration or sadness, I want you to hear this. It all belongs. It all belongs here. And all of it is an opportunity for worship and prayer. Always. Whether we're going through good times or bad times or difficult times or easy times, it's never a bad idea to give your worship and your prayer to Jesus. Because when we fix our gaze on Jesus, when we survey the glory of the cross and his agony and his suffering, that's how we're able to find our hope. That's how we're able to find the strength to keep going, right? Because Advent is not just a signal of the, the coming of Christmas. It's a rhythm of worship. It's a rhythm of worship by which we embrace this complex nature of God's arrival because it is past, it is present, and it is also future, and we live in this weird tension, which we'll talk about later. So wherever you find yourself in the Advent season, 
bring your worship to God. He's always worthy. And that's what I love about this season, too. No matter where you go, whether it be malls or, you know, dentist offices, there's, there's all these Christmas songs being played everywhere, right? And these Christmas songs are great hymns of our faith. They're declaring the truths of God over the airwaves as you're, like, shopping at Forever 21, right? Think about the words in some of these hymns. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What a beautiful prayer. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. We're just like casually singing these things as we shop and buy candles, and like these are profound truths of God's word. So some days it may feel easier than others, but come and worship, even if it means that you have to sing through the tears. Worship. Even if it means that you can't get the words out, but we gather together to be encouraged by God's people who will sing over you when you have no voice. Come and worship. It is good for us to do so. Whatever season you find yourself in today, know that God sees you, right? Emmanuel reminded us a couple of weeks ago that that was the first name given to God by human beings. He is the God who sees me. This whole season, all of this, everything that we're celebrating right now was done out of an act of deep affection, that you are his beloved, and he did all of this because he wanted to be with you, right? The, the word in that song, you didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't need us for heaven, but he wanted us. That's why he did everything that he did. Our Advent series is called The Unexpected King. Uh, the reason why we decided to call it this is because Jesus' promises and his goodness, they rarely arrive in our lives in times and methods that we think they're going to, <laughs> right? It seems to be this common theme throughout the scriptures that human beings will have this plan to fix things and that God will have a plan that is far different and far better than what they could have imagined, right? So as we reflect on the themes of Christ's arrival, things like hope and peace and joy and love, we do so embracing the reality that all of these good things, like the Messiah himself, they come packaged in ways that are altogether surprising and unexpected. Always. So this week we're looking at the nature of Christian hope. Hope. By a show of hands, how many of you are a glass half full kind of people? Tend to put a positive spin on things. Oh, not a lot of you, okay. <laughs> how many of you would... Uh, Claim that you're a glass half empty kind of person. You're a little more, you would say you're a realist, right? You kind of see things the way that they are. How many of you are undecided? Some of you are like, you don't think you're a pessimist or optimist. Now, before you start ostracizing the pessimists in the room, um, just understand this. Being an optimist or a pessimist, I don't think is a virtue. These are just elements of personality. In fact, I think we need really mature, and then notice I said mature, mature pessimists and skeptics. Right? People who are peppered with wisdom. Wisdom does not discriminate. It tempers all. Because here's the thing. I think it is completely possible to be the most optimistic, positive person in the whole world and still not grasp Christian hope. Because optimism is not hope. But when we hear the word hope, we're sort of conditioned to think of optimism, right? The ability to look at the bright side of things based on the available evidence, right? Because of A, B, and C, we can conclude that it'll probably work out. If hope is simply optimism, then hope really depends on circumstances, doesn't it? It depends on things being generally 
okay. But what we observe time and time again is that the biblical hope does not revolve around circumstances. In fact, biblical hope has the audacity to believe in favorable outcomes despite everything pointing to the contrary. There is this audacity to believe for good things amidst really terrible situations, right? What is that? What is it that empowers three teenagers to face a death sentence by fire and say, oh, our God will rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow? What is it that fuels the confidence of a small shepherd boy to take on a giant three times his size when all the other professional warriors are scared witless? What is it that gives peace to a savior on the night of his crucifixion to say, not my will, but yours be done? What is it that allows a third century Christian to run straight into the doom of martyrdom, believing that even a humiliating death is to the glory of God who works things altogether for the good of those who love him? What is that that allows the people of God to hope amidst not just unlikely but straight up impossible circumstances? See, where optimism revolves around the available evidence based in one's circumstances, we can't have that kind of shallow hope because for humanity, sometimes evidence tends to point not so good, right? If you look at where things go sometimes, in the past eight days, there have been two more mass shootings, one in Colorado, one in Virginia. Twelve people were killed. When is this going to stop, right? Like we see all this pain and death and sickness and war and famines and the, the, sometimes the evidence seems to be stacked against favorable outcomes. So, so our Christian hope doesn't revolve around the available evidence. It can't. Our hope revolves around a person and a promise. See, our hope is anchored in the Lord and his word because a God who is able to undo the ultimate curse, death itself, there is not a situation or circumstance that can be beyond hope, right? Because there is no evil, there is no destruction that cannot be undone, no circumstance that cannot be redeemed for a God who can reverse death itself. The theologian and teacher Tim Mackey, he said this, Biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds, it's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. So cultural hope, optimism, it's choosing to see how things could work out and believing that they will. But biblical hope is seeing that there is no evidence that things will get better and choosing to hope anyway because of the person whom we choose to believe. G.K. Chesterton said this, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is merely flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. And this is really what sets Christian faith apart from the wisdom of our age, right? right? The wisdom of our age is based on ideals and virtues. If you were to ask somebody that you came along on the street and asked them, do you believe in things like hope and peace and joy and love? I highly doubt that you meet somebody who says, no, I don't believe in hope or I don't value love. Most people would say yes. What I do think you'd find a difference is in how we define those things. What is our hope? What is our joy? And for those who find themselves within the Christian faith, these ideas are much more than platitudes, right? Our hope 
is not just an idea. Our hope has a name. Our peace has a name. Our joy has a name. Love has a name. Our hope is anchored in the personhood of Yahweh, revealed to us in Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Amen? We're going to go to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It'll be on the screens if you want to take a moment to turn there. I'm going to take a moment to recover my strength here. We're going to get through it, guys. Don't worry. Okay. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then, the angel, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. That's wild. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Notice how he described the two of them differently. <laughs> the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In the days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, so Zechariah, he's a priest. Yes, he's attending to worship in the temple. He's responsible for facilitating the worship of God's people. And Luke describes Zechariah and Elizabeth as righteous in the same way that someone like Noah or Abraham or Job were described as righteous in the scriptures. And this is actually really, really important because in this culture, it was often an assumption that, uh, that if somebody uh, was unable to get pregnant, that there was some kind of violation of the law that there was some kind of sin in this person's, person's life that led to this. 
And Luke is doing what Jesus did, and he's correcting this wisdom. Because the wisdom of the age tried to connect the dots, right? Uh, that if somebody was sick, or somebody was differently abled, or somebody was, was barren, it was because something was wrong that they had done, that there was some kind of sin in their life. But Christ's wisdom reminds us that sometimes bad things happen to good people. It has nothing to do with what, what they've done. Whether sin came from us or not, sin affects us all. This broken world creates broken situations based on all of our sin. It was also assumed in this day that if a couple couldn't get pregnant, that it was always because of the woman. So Jewish teachers even instructed Jewish men to divorce their wives if they were barren so they could go and reproduce with other women. And not being able to have women was actually an issue of social security. Because if a couple didn't have children, then they, didn't, they couldn't have anyone take care of them in their old age. So this was fairly serious. And there was a lot of stigma. There was a lot of shame on this kind of situation in the culture. Notice how Zachariah, even into their old age, stuck with Elizabeth. Even despite the cultural shame, the social insecurity, the pressure that he must have received from all of his peers, leave her and go spend your time with someone that can give you children. He decided to stick with her. I mean, what an icon of faithfulness Zachariah is. There's probably a year's worth of sermons we could just pull from that. We won't, but we could. And as a priest, Zechariah is one of many who are faithfully awaiting the return of God's presence. Because remember, um, uh, uh, despite there being 400 years of silence, that the prophets haven't spoken, right? Remember that God has not spoken through the prophets for four centuries. And the presence of God never came back to dwell in the temple after Nehemiah rebuilt it. So Zechariah and the priesthood, they're faithfully facilitating worship of Yahweh anyway. Even though God isn't physically there. Even though they haven't heard a word from him in four centuries, they're worshiping Yahweh faithfully. He's already displaying this hope, despite an apparently, quote, hopeless situation, right? What's interesting is that there were likely around 18,000 priests that served the temple. That's a lot. That's a megachurch right there. Who attended different duties in the temple, right? They all had different uh, areas of, of, of coverage. East Preach was able to perform these acts of worship maybe two weeks out of the year. Two weeks out of the year, they were able to do this. And getting to light the incense in the holy place, this was seen as a really great honor, which is why they drew lots to determine who would get to do it. Some priests never even got to see the opportunity to light the incense. So this was a big moment. Right? So, so Zechariah, his lot gets drawn. This is towards the end of his life. And he's like, oh, my goodness. I finally get to be the one to go in to the holy place and light the incense. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So there's already all this adrenaline as he heads into the holy place. Right? And he's excited to, to worship on behalf of his people in this way. And then an angel of the Lord appears to him, which I'm guessing it's the first time he's met one. Now, we often think about angels as being these, like, really, you know, gorgeous models with six-packs and, like, dove wings and, like, but if you look at any description of an angel, of a heavenly being in the scriptures, they are terrifying. They have eyes all over the place and different faces on sides of their heads. They're, they're scary. Often you see angels have to go, hey, listen, don't be afraid. I know. I know. Don't worry. I'm not going to hurt. I'm not going to eat you, right? That's how this is. He's scared. He said he was gripped with fear. Imagine. You go into worship and light the incense and this angelic being appears to you. And this angel informs him not only is he going to have a child, 
But this child is going to be something special. This child is going to ritually abstain from a bunch of things, kind of like Samson. And this child is going to pick up the, the mantle of the prophet Elijah? What? Elijah was like the mega prophet. He was the mega hero of the faith, right? Imagine an angel telling you, not only are you going to have a kid in an unlikely time of your life, but this kid is going to carry the mantle of the hero of the scriptures that you study. Amazing. And this person is going to be the one who is prophesied to prepare the people for the arrival of the Lord. Amazing. Now, even though his whole life was dedicated to holding out for hope of arrival of God's presence, that's what Zechariah was doing his whole life, he couldn't accept it when God literally sent an angel to tell him face to face. He doubted. Isn't that wild? And I love Gabriel's exchange in this. He basically just says, like, do you have any idea who I am? I hang out with the God that you worship. Like, I know him. <laughs> and I'm telling you, this is what he said. And because you're so stubborn, you're not going to be able to talk <laughs> for a little bit. It's kind of a humorous story, but there's weight. It's serious. He's trying to tell them, I'm not messing around with you right now. This is a big deal, what I'm telling you. But the pressure, the weight of his worldly reality was so thick that even a direct messenger from the Lord couldn't totally get through to him. We're like this. We are. We often make fun of people in the Bible for not getting the message. Right? We think about like the Israelites when they finally escaped Egypt and God split the ocean in half and then sent a pillar of fire and did all kinds of wild things. And then Moses goes away for a couple weeks and comes back and they've built this cow and they're dancing around it. And like we're like, wow, those Israelites are stupid. They forget so easily. But we do the same thing. We are prone to wander. We are prone to forget. We are able to build an Ebenezer and say, God did this for me. And then turn around and immediately forget and go on our own way. We're stubborn. Even Zechariah, the faithful, the hopeful Zechariah, he couldn't find hope even in the direct message of God. Now, other figures have doubted God's plans in the past, but never was the punishment this severe. The, the term here used for mute also could mean that he was deaf, too. So suddenly, after a whole life of not being mute and deaf, he couldn't speak and he couldn't hear. That's wild. This was a signal that this announcement was something really special to be taken very seriously. And then Elizabeth, she receives this gift of conception, and she rejoices to the Lord. She says, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. God has a way of doing this. God has a way of addressing the needs of humanity, and yet addressing the needs he knows that you have personally. God has a way of doing this. He is over everything. He is sovereign. He is Lord, but he's also so personal and intimate. He knows exactly what you need. He's not going to sacrifice what you need in order to give the world what it needs. He knows that what the world needs is what you need. And even in sacrifice, he gives us something beyond what we can possibly imagine. And this would begin a trend, by the way, of women in the, in the scriptures, in the gospels, receiving good news and giving God thanks. Right? We think about uh, Mary later in this chapter. She'll receive the good news that she will conceive Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will, will come upon her and she'll conceive Jesus. And then she sings this song to the Lord. 
At the resurrection, it will be women who are the first to see the resurrected Jesus and then go and tell others about it. In a culture and an age where women were treated, frankly, horribly, we see this conscious choice of God to come alongside the marginalized and the undignified and to give them dignity and to, get, and to, and to uphold their, their work and their place in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so let's talk about a biblical notion of hope. The biblical words for hope in the, in the Hebrew, there's a, there's a lot of them, but there are two that are kind of uh, the, the mainstays of, 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 of the word hope that we see translated. They're tigva and kava. Both of them have the same root word, which is kav, which means cord. And the idea is that hope is this tension that we hold, right? When you think about a cord that's pulled and then you finally get a release, there's like an expectation that's met. Hope is this stage. Hope is that waiting, the in-between, when there's an anticipation, where there's a tension waiting for the relief of what's coming. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are indicative of what Israel is going through, holding this tension, waiting for the Lord. There's this, this story of God's covenant promise. The culture was reestablished. The temple was rebuilt. There was 400 years of silence. The prophets haven't spoken. God's presence never came back to dwell. And the circumstances are pointing to reality that God has abandoned us. That God doesn't care that we're worshiping him. That he is not coming back. So Zechariah has been faithfully carrying out worship of Yahweh, even though the evidence points to a contrary one. He's been leaning into this tension of hope. The circumstances, the evidence, they did not point to the way that God was going to do this as a likelihood, right? Not only am I going to usher in the Messiah, but I'm going to do it by giving you a baby in this weird time of your life, and that baby is going to be the one who prepares the way of the Lord. It's not a likelihood in Zechariah's perspective, but God is not limited by our circumstances. What Zechariah learned in reality, what he had always learned about in theory, is that God is always the one who has the final say. His authority is ultimate. God's power to deliver, to rescue, to save, it stretches far beyond anything we deem to be possible. That's who God is. His faithfulness endures because it began far beyond before our great, 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 great grandparents were even born. And it will continue after our great-great-grandchildren's great-great-grandchildren have faded from the memories of their great-great-grandchildren. God's scope is so much bigger than what we can possibly imagine. He's not limited by our imagination. He is the creator, the one who spoke the universe into existence. So that means all he needs to do is say something is so, and it will be so. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that Zechariah is receiving this promise from. So if God tells you you're going to get pregnant at 85, and that son's going to be the prophet who prepares the way for the Savior of the world, it may seem unlikely, but because God is the one who said it, it will be so. Our hope has a name. Jesus. What God promises, sorry, what promises of God? This is the question that I have for you. What promises of God seem to be dwindling from your point of view based on how you perceive your circumstances? What things do you know God has said to be true in your life that you have a hard time accepting because of the evidence? God can't possibly forgive me for this. 
God couldn't have made me in his image. Look at me. God no longer cares for me and my family. God won't provide the job that I need. God won't put food on the table. God isn't healing me because it's not possible. God cannot restore my marriage. God won't bring my child home. You fill in the blank. Where have you found hopelessness because of the evidence? There is a God who promises to deliver goodness despite the evidence. Even when everything seems to point to one outcome, he is the God who can turn literally any outcome completely around. That's the God that we serve because he literally did that with death itself. In Hosea, it talks about how our God is the person who takes this valley of trouble and turns it into a door of hope. This is who our God is. Our culture is going to continue to push us into the possibility of transcending our circumstances in order to escape them. Whether it be through physical pleasure, virtual realities, whatever. Our culture is going to push us to figure out a way to disengage, to escape. But remember, the Christ that we serve did not opt for escape. The Christ that we serve modeled for us a full embodiment of humanity, a restoration of what it means to be human. Your hope of heaven exists right now where you're sitting. Your resolution for your story is not somewhere else. It is right here, right now. The God of hope is present in you right now. And God's hope is always surprising. It will almost always come in ways that are packaged, in ways that we are not expecting. Even the Messiah, who was prophesied to have the government on his shoulders, this was going to be the Messiah who delivered Israel out of physical and governmental oppression. The government on your shoulders, that's what you promised. That's what we're expecting. He carried the government on his shoulders in the form of a Roman execution rack that he bore, the cross. He will always deliver exactly what he promised, but it might be in ways that we're not expecting. So my challenge for you is this. What does it mean to cling to hope right now? What does this mean for me? It's not the end. Whatever you're going through, it's not the end. Most pain in our lives, it doesn't go away, it just moves around. What's hard one day will be easy tomorrow. What's easy today might be hard tomorrow. Pain just moves around. And the, the temptation in the waiting, because waiting is really hard. Waiting is really difficult. And hoping in the waiting is really difficult. In fact, hope is tortuous. Have you guys seen uh, The Dark Knight Rises? If you haven't, I'll explain. It's a Batman movie. But basically, Bane, who is this muscular, brilliant enemy of, of Bruce Wayne, who is Batman, by the way, spoiler alert, um, he breaks Batman's back and throws him into this prison. This prison is interesting. It has no walls. It has no gates. It has no locks. It has no guards. It has no chains. It's just a hole in the ground about 500 feet deep. Anyone can climb out of that hole at any time that they wish. They just have to be able to make the climb. And it just so happens to be a pretty much impossible climb. And Bane says that 
that the ability to, to look up and to have hope that one day I could escape, that's why the prison was so brilliant. Because I hope unfulfilled is the ultimate torture. Now, Batman was able to escape. Messianic figures, maybe. Well, we won't go there. Um, but that's, hope is hard. Hope feels like torture. It feels like we're literally holding out for something that may never come. So my challenge to you is this. The pain's not going to stop. It's just going to move. So be patient and know that the hope of heaven is in you. You're a victim of things. We become victims of things. But we're also victims of hope. And God has work for you to do in the suffering. He has an example that you're supposed to set in the suffering. He's placed hope in you for a reason. This is part of our light to the world, to hope even when the evidence points to the contrary. So my challenge is don't go numb. Don't check out. Don't escape. Show up. Show up. No matter how hard it is, no matter what you're going through, show up. You are a living stone through whom God is building his kingdom. Show up. You have value. You have worth. You have meaning in the kingdom. No matter how marginalized you feel, no matter how poor you are, no matter how sick you are, you are a living stone with whom Christ is building his kingdom. Show up. Show up. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to go to communion. This is the ultimate example of our hope right here. This is God taking a valley of trouble and turning it into a door of hope. When Jesus was crucified, it appeared that we had lost all the evidence, even the proof that people thought was there. He's dead. He's been crucified. He's been defeated. God was able to turn even that around. Even death itself was reversed on the cross through the empty grave. So as we reflect on this, survey the glory of Christ's sacrifice. Know that Christ was just as real and just as human as everyone in this room. That if he were standing right here, Christ would be hurt if we afflicted pain on him. He would feel affection if we were to hug him. Christ was real, and he embodied suffering as an example of what is possible through God. That there is no form of torture, no form of pain, no form of any evil or destruction that cannot be undone, that cannot be redeemed by the power of Christ's love. So Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood and the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me.